This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Digital innovation is giving rise to new business models. Uber and Airbnb are household names today, when not so long ago we were all learning about the sharing economy. But regulations don't always evolve as quickly as uh, technological technological change, at least that's a perception. Uh, So what should policymakers and regulators do? Here to talk about some some of his insights is uh, Wharton professor Kevin Warbach. He recently wrote a policy brief for the Penn Wharton Policy Public Policy Initiative. Uh, welcome, Kevin. Thanks. Glad to be here. So, in your article, you mentioned something called the Internet of the World. Can you tell us what that is? Well, I think there's something big going on, and it's it's a bigger trend than most people realize. There are three trends, and each in and of themselves is significant. One is. Uh, what we often call the sharing economy. I think it's really more the on-demand economy. It's not just about sharing resources, but services like you mentioned, like Uber and Airbnb, which give on-demand access to resources. The second piece is the Internet of Things, all kinds of devices, billions and billions of devices getting networked. And the third is big data and analytics, the ability to understand and manipulate trends coming out of all those devices. What those three things together mean is that all of the world potentially is networked. It's not just that you go somewhere to a computer, you go to your phone to get access to information. It's that potentially everything is a generator of data and all that data can be integrated and analyzed and processed and manipulated. Um, And so what that means is the kinds of trends and the kinds of developments that we saw online uh, are now happening offline. They're happening to things and physical objects in the world as well. You also point out that the scale of on-demand services is potentially much greater than the legacy industries they challenge. How so? So there's this uh, kind of cheap talk about new technologies disrupting old technologies. And actually, the the theory of disruptive innovation, which goes back to Clayton Christensen at Harvard Business School, is a a serious academic theory. Uh, But far too often, people in business and entrepreneurship in the media kind of use the word disruption as just kind of a synonym for new technology. And the reality is it's not that you have one market and suddenly a bunch of new companies come in and replace that market. Often what happens, and this is what we're seeing with things like on-demand economy, is that the new markets are different. So it's not that Uber takes the taxi market and every taxi gets replaced by an Uber driver. Uh, In fact, Uber has put out some numbers for the past several years that show that the scale of the market they are tapping into is actually much bigger. So they generate far more revenue in the cities where they are mature than the taxi industry as a whole does. So what that means is it's not just a competitive threat. Certainly it is a competitive threat to the incumbent industries, but it's creating something new. It's unlocking latent demand that the previous approaches didn't reach. You also say that, um, you also pointed out that throughout the different technological waves since the 1990s, we went through Mm e-commerce, social media, now mobile, that regulations have always been seen as an enemy of innovation, Mm -hmm. but you say that this digital dichotomy is actually misunderstood. Can you explain that? Sure. So there's two pieces to it. One is the term that you reference that I use in the paper called the digital dichotomy. 
that is a misunderstanding that the online world is inherently different from the offline world. Uh, and the reason that's not true is what I said at the beginning. Um, increasingly, there is no difference, even if you're using a physical thing. So take the Uber example, and it's such a perfect example. Uh, the per there's a person, there's a physical person driving a physical car. But from your standpoint, running the app and pushing a button and saying, make a car appear, it's as though that's something that's in cyberspace. It's as though it's something digital. It's an extension of the software infrastructure of Uber, uh, even though it's a physical thing, a physical person driving a physical car. Um, and so we tend to assume that there's one set of rules for the real world, and there's one set of rules for the digital world. And that's a mistake because increasingly there is just the world. Software technology, networks, all these trends in what I call the internet of the world are affecting everything. So that's the first piece. The assumption that uh, we can just ignore the rules of the physical world because we need totally new rules for the digital world. Um, the larger issue though uh, is this question of innovation and regulation. And again, there's this common assumption that innovation needs to thrive with no regulation. And anytime government gets involved, that's a check and a drain and a block on innovation. And that's not really the case. And what I talk about in the article you referenced uh, and the larger Law Review article it's based on is that if you go and look at the history, uh, how the internet developed, how electronic commerce developed in the 1990s, a surprising amount of the time, it was government action actually facilitating innovation. And uh, the emerging startups actually pushing for that government intervention to help create a more innovative marketplace. That's an interesting point. And uh, in your article, you also pointed to uh, one challenge for regulators, and that is um, a lot of these new startups don't really fit neatly into industry categories. So, uh, and the example you pull up, you use is uh, Uber versus Skype. Mm -hmm. Can you go through that example? Sure. So, I should be clear. It's not that regulators always get it right. They make mistakes and they have lots of flaws and lots of reasons why they uh, act in a certain way. Uh, and we should definitely criticize bad regulations. Um, we just shouldn't assume necessarily that they are bad and necessarily what, what startups do is good. Um, the Skype and Uber comparison is basically that both of them were companies that when they started were illegal in most jurisdictions. So Skype, which is the very popular internet communication service, originally voice calling, now also video and messaging and so forth, eventually now owned by Microsoft, uh, Skype was illegal in most of the world when it launched because there were rules saying you could not do a communication service, a telephone service, outside of the existing regulatory infrastructure. In the US, because of what we did, I was at the Federal Communications Commission in the 1990s when we had to think about voice over IP, we very deliberately left open the door. Even though things like Skype were outside of the regulatory structure, we made a conscious decision to allow them to develop. And that's an example where regulators consciously deciding not to impose a whole set of rules early on when these are nascent technologies allow them to grow. Um, so Uber is similar. Uber is illegal in most of the cities where it operates. Uh, and the story of Skype, I think, is a hopeful story because what happened with Skype is that, first of all, you had regulators like the FCC in the U.S. who understood that these new internet calling technologies were an opportunity. 
they were a way to lower prices and create better service and new service and innovation. Uh, and so that we shouldn't rush to impose all the traditional rules on them. And then as these companies grew, they were able to work with regulators to address the rules that were necessary. So for example, it's a concern if you're using Skype or some other voice over IP service, what if you want to call 911? What if you have an emergency? Um, those services were all outside of the infrastructure of the emergency calling system. And that's a problem. If you have your phone and which app you're using determines whether if you have an emergency you get through to the police or the fire department. Um, that's a technical problem that was overcome through regulators working together with the companies. Um, and it could only be done by a willingness to not immediately impose rules that would have shut these companies down on day one, but work through how they can actually help in addressing some of these concerns. And I think that's the path forward for companies like Uber and Airbnb as well. And what we've started to see is they began with this very strong, no regulation, keep it away from us. Uh, and gradually, we're starting to see them recognize that they need to work together with the regulators. But don't you think there's one critical difference between Uber and Skype, and that is, you know, with Uber, there's the issue of safety mm -hmm. of the users or the riders, but that's not the case with Skype. So the example I gave about the 911 service, the emergency service, that's a safety issue. Uh, but no question, uh, all these companies are different. Uh, and it's not the case that there's one set of rules, there's one regulator that applies to everything. Um, I'm making the general point that these new services that spring up outside of the traditional regulatory structure, um, they raise public policy issues. Uh, and you can't get away from that. So Uber raises a whole host of issues. It raises issues about worker treatment. It raises issues about safety of the people in the cars, as you mentioned. It raises issues about the Americans with Disabilities Act. Do they have to provide access for people in wheelchairs and so forth? All these issues. Um, and the way to address those issues is not to say it's new, so therefore regulators stay away, they'll figure it out. The way to address them is to say, okay, let's look at the issues. So um, is there a way to address what we really care about in safety? If what we care about is you don't want people to get into a car and someone be an axe murderer who's driving the car. All right, there's different ways that we can solve that problem. And, and maybe there are solutions. And in fact, Uber, because they have all this data, and they've got an app and they know everything about the driver, maybe there's a better way they can solve that problem. Um, so the way to work that through is to have that discussion and say, identify what it is the regulators are trying to do and figure out how we can do that. The problem is initially so much of the reaction was the regulators are necessarily bad. Um, they have nothing to do but to stop the innovation. Uh, and I think that's not a helpful conversation. Uh, your point is that government can actually be a positive force in innovative markets. Can you give us more examples of that? Sure. So we saw a lot of examples with the growth of the internet and electronic commerce starting 20 years ago. Um, one of them was the antitrust case against Microsoft. So Microsoft was the dominant company on the personal computer with the operating system market. And lots of startup companies, companies like Netscape, realized that if they wanted to innovate, they wanted to build the internet economy as we know it today, you couldn't have Microsoft standing there using its power at the time. It's hard to realize today with what's happened, the growth of Apple and the growth of smartphones and so forth, just how much power Microsoft had as a bottleneck. Microsoft controlled access to the PC, and the PC was the only game in town. Um, had it not been for that action by the government in filing that antitrust case, Microsoft may have been able to warp or slow down the growth of the open internet economy. And it turned out most of the startups were on the side of the government in that case wanting to open it up. Um, 
A similar more recent case is the fight over network neutrality rules, where lots and lots of startup companies went to the Federal Communications Commission and said, we don't want broadband providers, the access providers, the internet service providers, or ISPs as they're called, to stop us from getting into the market or to basically tax us to say, well, you can only get to customers if you pay us this special fee. Um, and so they were actually urging government to act in order to create a more open market. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, you also say that on-demand services would bring what you call algorithmic competition policy questions to the fore. Why is this important? What do you mean by that? This is a really interesting issue. So competition policy, I gave the example of Microsoft, um, is tremendously important to the digital economy. And uh, the Microsoft case was an example where there was a new kind of uh, business model. Microsoft was one of the first to build this platform network-based business model where Windows benefited from all the applications on top of Windows, uh, but Windows would always want to uh, ensure that none of those applications would then compete with it. Um, and there was tremendous benefits of that model. You know, Microsoft did great things for innovation, uh, but uh, the Microsoft case put a spotlight on some of the dangers and the downsides. What we're seeing now with these next generation platforms, these on-demand platforms, is a new twist on that model. Um, companies like Uber and Airbnb are built on algorithms. They're built on software that understands supply and demand uh, and matches people on both sides of the network. Um, and again, that's a tremendous boon for competition and innovation. I'm not saying it's bad by any means. But it does put the platform owner in a position of unimaginable control. Um, how do you know that what you are paying for that Uber ride is the efficient price. Uber says, well, by definition, it's what the algorithm gives you. Well, but who controls the algorithm? Um, and what stops the algorithm from colluding with someone else's algorithm uh, behind the scenes to fix prices? And again, we have antitrust doctrines about things like price fixing, but those are based on people in a smoke-filled room saying, okay, you're gonna charge this and I'm gonna charge that, and if you defect. Um, now it's all happening silently through software. Um, and so I think this is one of the great competition policy challenges of our age is how to prevent those kinds of mechanisms from uh, raising costs and raising prices and hurting consumers while still allowing flexibility for companies to innovate and do things that most of the time actually wind up uh, helping consumers. So that brings us to the point you made about algorithmic cartels. Yeah. So how could those come about? Uh, well, so again, uh, the algorithms can talk to other algorithms. And we see this um, already. You look at uh, pricing on Amazon.com. So Amazon has this platform that allows anyone else to sell on Amazon.com. And they can set their price. And a lot of the companies that are sophisticated that do this uh, set their prices algorithmically. So they might say, Amazon is charging this price, automatically charge 2% less than Amazon's price. So when it comes up, they're the cheapest price. Um, but what happens is you get this increasingly complex uh, war between the algorithms because they're all basing their prices on each other and so forth. And what can potentially happen is uh, companies decide, well, no, let's both agree we'll set a price higher as opposed to competing uh, in a race to the bottom and we'll both be better off. But who's worse off is consumers. So um, that's a concern that we're starting to see on platforms like Amazon. And it's more of a concern on these digital on-demand platforms where, again, everything is in software. Uh, and we have lots of different actors coming together. Um, and uh, we don't even know what the mechanism is 
to get access to the data to see if that's what's happening. So how do you regulate that? Uh, well, so it's a good question. The first is you start to have a conversation where the regulators say, here's what we're trying to achieve. And the companies say, here's what we're doing. And you figure out what's possible. Um, ultimately, as I said, there needs to be access to the data. Uh, and this is a great opportunity because these new platforms generate tremendous amounts of data. Uh, and if they, uh, and they use the data internally to be more efficient and to provide better service, but if they could provide more transparency of that data, um, that would give regulators the opportunity to identify what the market performance is. And this can be done in a secure way, in a way that doesn't uh, harm them with competitors and so forth. Um, but it's actually making the regulation itself more algorithm, making the regulation itself more data-driven, which is a healthy and a good thing. And so I think this is potentially the new model we're going to come to, uh, but it takes the company's willingness to work together and not to you know, make these sort of great you know, statements uh, that, oh, we don't need any regulation. So you mentioned alternatives to yeah. direct, direct regulation, sure. which are self-regulation and what you call co-regulation and delegated regulation. Can you explain the differences among all those? Yeah, these are models that actually are used much more widely elsewhere in the world, especially in Europe for things like internet content. Um, and there's a whole variety of different models, but basically um, they start with the notion that um, companies individually and industry collectives and industry groups um, potentially know the most about their market, uh, and if they're well-meaning, they can come up with mechanisms that achieve the goals of regulators without government having to be intrusive and without government having to be inefficient um, because regulatory agencies don't have the data and they're not set up to operate in that way. The problem is you need some accountability. So just saying let companies regulate themselves is meaningless because there's always incentives for companies to cheat or to game the system or to basically help themselves at the expense of the public. Um, but there's a variety of mechanisms where, for example, government sets goals and then gives industry or either individually or industry groups uh, uh, opportunities to meet it and then to report on how they're doing and, again, to provide transparency of the data. Um, there are mechanisms that basically say, all right, in the first instance, you have this opportunity to act. But if you don't act in a way that we find appropriate, then we're going to intervene. Um, and uh, again, there's a variety of different variations on these mechanisms, uh, but it's an approach that says instead of everything starts with the regulator, the regulator says yes or no before anything happens in the marketplace, it says, all right, companies can come into the marketplace, especially new companies. It goes back to what I was saying before. Nascent small innovators should have lots of running room uh, because even a good rule will kill them off when they're too small. Um, but that doesn't mean that when you've got an Uber, which is a $65 billion company, it's one of the, you know, the largest companies in the world, even though it's not even public, and has hundreds of millions of uh, people that it's serving around the world, they're not a small company. Um, they're fairly new, but, but they're now a large player that's having big impacts. It doesn't make sense to say that that approach makes sense for them anymore. Um, so the question is, can we allow them in and then have a process to then collaboratively have them work with government uh, and have them be more transparent. And again, there's a variety of ways to do that. And I'm not arguing for any particular one as being perfect. I'm arguing for an openness and a recognition um, that um, regulation isn't a dirty word. Any final thoughts for policymakers and regulators? 
Um, so regulators have to take action here too. It's not that they need to just stay where they are and expect the companies to come to them. Um, often there's lots of legacy in regulation, and some of it is regulators' fault, and some of it is the fault of, for example, the legislatures that set up the rules. Um, a lot of what we're seeing in these markets is the need for legislative change, for um, governments to change the structure of the rules, because the rules use terms that no longer make sense, or they have categories that no longer make sense. Um, and so there needs to be a lot of dialogue between industry and regulators and legislators to say, all right, where are these glitches? Let's fix them. Um, and uh, regulators need to be part of that and not to just assume that the status quo is the right approach. Um, regulators also need to be open. They need to go to these uh, companies and say to them, okay, we have shared goals here. We're not here to put you out of business, um, but we care about consumers. And we trust that you do too, so let's, let's come up with a solution. Um, and so it really has to go both ways. And, and ultimately, this is about trust. There needs to be a mutual process of generating trust between these industries and the regulators. Um, and in a lot of cases, that's lacking. But I'm hopeful, and I think the examples that we saw with the growth of the internet really are a story about um, good work on both sides uh, that facilitated this extraordinary explosion of innovation and wealth creation that we saw. That's very well said, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, my pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.